Go Tenant, the revolutionary new property software built by landlords and trusted by tenants. Go Tenants is your one-stop property management assistant that will take the pain away from your tenant recruitment process and the management of your properties. From advertising your property to maintenance reporting, electronic signatures to full property management software. Stop worrying about double bookings and the hassle of unnecessary admin because Go Tenants is here to enable you to seamlessly run your portfolio from anywhere in the world. Go to gotenants.co.uk to find out more. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Today we have got Linda Wright, planning consultant from Planet Wright. Good morning, Linda. Good morning, boys and girls. How are you? Are you okay? I'm all right, Rick. Thank you. I've got a brew in front of me. I'm having tea with Rick Gallon. What better could I ask for on a Monday morning? Absolutely. What a great way to start the week. So, Linda, we uh, we had you on the podcast, didn't we? Probably, oh gosh, it must have been over a year ago now. Um, your second book, if I remember. I was, yes. I mean, we'll talk about books as well towards the end, because I asked you that question as well about a year ago. Um, so, we're seeing, you know, a few changes, certainly with HMOs and licensing and things like that uh, over the last 12 months. So um, first of all, for the people that don't know who you are, could you give us a little bio about you, about your business and about your background? Ooh, we could be here for three hours, Rick. Um, briefly, I'm an independent planning consultant. I get people planning permission, or at least I, I try to. Um, I have been very successful at that. Um, I, I'm a gamekeeper term poacher, formerly worked for councils up and down the country, USP on my CV as I used to work for the government of Bermuda, getting, uh, dealing with planning applications. So I generally have been in this for a long time. I've seen most things, um, so nothing really that anybody can bring to me will frighten. So I deal with all sorts of uh, planning applications um, from big to small, complex to simple Nothing's really ever simple in planning, but you know what I mean. So I'm an independent planning consultant. Thanks, Linda. And you say you worked for the government of Bermuda. I didn't even say that I right. Did. Bermuda. I said Bermuda. <laughs> okay, so how how did you do that? I mean, were you based in the UK or did you actually go over there? Well, it was a complete fluke. And actually, uh, Rick, there's a lot of policemen, English policemen over yeah. in Bermuda because the, yeah. the law is very similar. Um, yeah. John Adver in the planning magazine applied with 80 odd other people and bizarrely got the job. And I left so fast, I left Scorchmarks on the carpet. So you lived in Bermuda at that time? Yeah, six years. Okay. All right, so you did that for six years. Um, what? Why did you come back? I mean, I'm sure that Bermuda is a lot nicer than the UK. Uh, it is lovely. But at the end, of, and it's a tax haven. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not home. Uh, you're always on a contract. You're always always an expat. Um, you never know whether your contract's going to be renewed. Um, there wasn't much security. You couldn't buy a house um, unless you had millions and millions in the bank. So it was a no-brainer, really. And I came back. Um, I got married out there and came back and lived in Hampshire. Okay. So um, in terms of planning, then, Linda, I know that you said you sort of like. Um, poacher turned gamekeeper if that's the right way around I never know how to say it so what does that mean then so um you know take us from when you left Bermuda came back to the sunny UK what happened from there oh I, I did all sorts of things I came back worked for 
um, in Dorset, worked for a telecommunications company on as a, as a manager for a blue chip company, uh, worked for various consultancies, worked for the Home Builders Federation and for volume house builders. So I've seen this not just from the council's side, being a planning officer in a council, but also from blue chip companies and from the very pressured environment of volume house builders trying to get planning permission for large estates of, of houses and actually help local councils with housing delivery. So I've seen it from all sides. Um, so it means that when I negotiate or when I deal with planning applications for clients, I, I speak to the planning officers in the planning departments as a planner to a planner. Um, and what tends to happen is they tend to react well. Not, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, not all planners do, because all planners, it puts their backs up because they think, well, she's going to know more than me. Um, so some planners, it doesn't work well with, but the majority, 98%, it does, and they will relax, deal with me. They know that I know what we can and can't do, and what they can and can't do. And so it seems to ease the process. And also, if we need to get into some hard negotiations and say, look, you can't do this and this is not going to work and my client won't, won't accept it, then I will do that too. You know, I'm not a pushover. It's not that I'm going to constantly work with planners and kowtow and do exactly what they want. I don't do that. If, if they're clearly wrong and it's going to affect something that my client is wanting to do, then I'll say so and we'll argue it. And if we have to go to appeal, we'll go to appeal. Okay, so because obviously this is um, a very mixed group, so we're in the, the HMO group, we are live, and um, a lot of the questions that we get through in the group are um, the, the very varied from quite complex to um, quite basic, which is fine because the level of experience in the group is very different. So yeah. I've got some questions here, Linda, that we've been collating um from the group that are on a planning basis and i thought it'd be quite apt if we could um ask you these so the first one and this is the one that comes up all of the time and people do get this very very confused with licensing um, and we do kind of have this conversation quite a lot and you know what's coming because we talk about this quite a lot so article four planning direction could you explain to the listeners really exactly what it is and how it can affect them as, as easily as you can. Right. Uh, I will do my best. Um, it's nuts, basically. Um, permitted development rights to change a single dwelling house to a three to six person HMO. And I'm going to reiterate now, this is about six people. It's about six tenants. It's not about bedrooms, it's not about beds. So when everybody, sort of, it's one of my little OCD things, I don't refer to HMOs as six bed or six bedroom HMOs, it's six tenants. Because if you put, if you have a double room and you put two people in there, then you have seven tenants and it doesn't comply with planning legislation. As soon as you go from six to seven, you automatically need planning permission. So let me say that up front. But if you want to change a single dwelling house to uh, a six, up to six people, three to six people, HMO, then there are certain, there are permitted development rights in a lot of the councils in England. 
if you're doing this in Wales, there are no permitted development rights in Wales. You need to know that. Welsh Assembly Government removed all permitted development rights. All HMOs require planning permission in Wales. So if you go just over the border, you need to know that. Linda, while, while, just while we're talking about Wales, I don't want to interrupt your flow, although I have, sorry. Um, Wales, um, so is it is it Article 4 in Wales or is it just, I mean, I, we kind of like link it to say because there is no permitted, permitted development rights in Wales. Is that Article 4 or, or not? Or is it just a completely different bill? No, good point, Rick. No, it isn't Article 4. It is no permitted development. The, the, legis the legislation in Wales is different. Planning legislation is different. And the Welsh Assembly Government, contrary to what the English um, central government wanted, was to give permitted development rights. The Welsh Assembly Government said, no, we're not giving permitted development rights. So each, and I'll come on to this in a minute, each local authority doesn't have to remove the permitted development rights. So Welsh Assembly Government, no permitted development legislation just says no. Right. Okay. Thanks for talking. Okay. Yeah. Right. Thank. Thanks, Rick. Sorry, we're talking over each other. I'm, I'm trying not to do that. So, the the insane thing that people can't get their heads around, and I understand it's it, it's difficult, is that central government issue a nationally conferred right that is permitted development for. Uh, single dwelling house nothing else if you start talking about other um other properties mixed use commercial uses shops uh with flats above and all of that kind of stuff that's that's under a different bit of the regs and, and we'll talk about it if we have if we've got time we'll talk about that separately what i'm talking about is a single dwelling house not a pub not a shop just a single dwelling house to um a six person hmr you have nationally conferred permitted development rights. But what happens is um, local circumstances dictate, such as in university towns, and I understand Worcester has an Article 4 direction that is area-wide. Um, what happened was a lot of councils were very unhappy with the central government issuing permitted development rights. And they said, no, 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 that, that doesn't work in our area. But what they have in the planning legislation is something called Article 4 direction. And that is the power to remove permitted development rights that are nationally conferred if the local circumstances dictate that they should be removed. And they have to apply an Article 4 direction generally, and I mean, we need to be careful here because not always, generally an Article 4 direction takes 12 months from being published to come into force. There are some instant uh, Article 4 directions that have come into force recently. Most notable is in Trafford. Um, but once they're published, they have 12 months to come into force. So you have 12 months to get all your HMLs uh, converted and up and running and everything else. So once they have come into force 12 months later, then what it means, it doesn't mean to say that you can't do um, an HMO in that area. It just means that you can't do it under permitted development rights. You have to submit a planning application. Now, once you submit that planning application, you're then into the whole realm of um, they can then assess the application against planning policies. And that's when it starts to become difficult because 
if there are restrictive planning policies or if the neighbours object, then that's when you start to get issues and potentially your planning application can be refused. So just do you think I've covered all the bases with Article 4 direction? And Article 4 directions are not just for HMOs. Article yeah. 4 directions are a general, you can, councils can remove permitted development rights for all sorts of things, extensions, garden sheds, um, UPVC windows in conservation areas, all sorts of things. Thank you, Linda. That's a really good explanation. And that's kind of raised a few other questions that I'll, um, I'll come on to. Um, so the first thing is, lots of people that confuse licensing with planning, they say that, for example, Nottingham, and this is quite a common phrase that we get in the group. Nottingham are no longer issuing HMO licenses. Now, that's where people are getting confused with licensing and planning. So what they're referring to is that Nottingham have Article 4 direction, and you will need to submit a planning application. Now, because of Article 4, does it automatically mean that you're not going to get planning. You kind of touched on it before, but everyone seems to think that it's a blanket cutoff because there's Article 4 direction. No, it isn't It isn't a blanket cutoff. It simply means that the council are obviously having an issue in that area, and it might be a university town. They might be having over-intensification in uses in the area. So they've put this Article 4 direction in place, and it might be cover the whole council area. I'm sorry, I'm doing hand movements and you can't see me, never mind. Um, it, it, it might cover the whole council area. It might just cover pockets of areas around colleges or universities. So you need to go onto the council's website and find out where those areas are, because sometimes you can have a property on one side of the road that is in a, an Article 4 direction area, and a property on the other side of the road that's out. So it's, you know, there are very finite lines with some of these things. So you have to check. You have to go on the council's website and check. If there is an Article 4 direction in place, it means the council are looking, they're watching it. They're wary of it. They're concerned about it. Now, some councils have very stringent uh, policy, planning policies in place. So that once you submit a planning application, you're into the realms of having to comply with those planning policies. Other councils don't. They've just put Article 4 directions in place and they want you to apply for a planning, uh, put a planning application in and get planning permission. But they've no very stringent policies in place. Now, in those circumstances, you, you can sometimes easily get planning permission. But in other councils where they've got things like um, you can't, within a, a certain uh, radius, uh, from the property, 50 metres, 100 metres, there can't be more than a certain percentage of HMOs, and that will be assessed from their HMO register, um, or you, you can't have clusters of HMOs, or you can't have an HMO and a family house and an HMO. You, 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 they have very odd and restrictive policies. Mm. Um, so it will depend on which council you put an application into, doesn't mean that just because there's an Article 4 direction doesn't mean to say that you can't do it. just means you have to put a planning application in. Now, the other thing is, and I'll, I'll finish on this, but the other thing is that when an application goes in, neighbours get consulted. Now, in my experience, um, neighbours seem to think, and a lot of planning committee members, 
elected members seem to think that as soon as an HMO is going in an area, no matter what you put in an application, it's going to be inhabited by drug addicts, alcoholics and prostitutes. Now, this hasn't been helped by the fact that a lot of service accommodation, which I find quite enterprising, to be honest, has ended up with pop-up brothels. So it's fueling the fire sometimes. So there is, there is prejudice against shared houses. And, and this is probably because there have been an awful lot of rogue landlords uh, out there over the past. And this is probably why all the new licensing regs have come in in October as well. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and I've got a couple of questions on objections, but you just touched on serviced accommodation. And that leads me on nicely to there was actually a question this week in the in the group uh, regarding mixed use. So, first of all, um, can you have a property that's half HMO and half serviced accommodation? Not that you'd want to, but it is a question that came up last week. Would you need planning permission for that? Um, uh, I would say yes. It would very much depend on the council because, as you say, it it's a mixed use. What category does it fall into? You see, there are some councils who would shrug their shoulders and say, well, it's all C3. But there are other councils, especially some of the London boroughs, that will say, no, 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 this is a mixed use. Oh, it's sui generis because it doesn't really, because you've, you've mixed two together. And it's and sui generis is of its own kind. It doesn't fit into one use class. Um, so I think um, it depends on the council, to be honest. Mm. But I would class it as a mixed use, and I would say that you would need to get planning permission. Um, it 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 lends itself to being tested, to be honest, because I've not dealt with one that is HMO and service accommodation. It then, as you've just said it then begs the question would you really want to do that um yeah. would that would your service accommodation um clients be happy with um hmo tenants it would depend on what kind of use if you if it's professional and if it's in a, a city and you've got for example you've got full-time tenants as hmos or they're there monday monday to friday Monday to Thursday yeah. and then you have other um, sort of corporate uh, clients coming into the service accommodation just for limited time periods because they're working for a company in the area then then that would probably work mm. um, and from that point of view it begs the question would that really need planning permission so it's a very gray area and I can't give you a yes or a no answer I, I would say it was a mixed use but it depends yeah. very much on how it's used and I think, it, you know, there are, you know, there's, there's very few sort of stated cases that we can fall back to on a lot of these because mm -hmm. some people will say with serviced accommodation that as long as it's uh, one unit of accommodation and you're just letting the whole house out to one family unit or, you know, to sort of several friends, it's still uh, C3, so it doesn't need to be changed. But then when you start separating each room inside the house, you kind of then become a bed and breakfast. And then you should really perhaps have C1 planning permission for bed and breakfast. Um, so, you know, I mean, lot, lots of people doing lots of different things. Linda, when we talked about Article 4, we also mentioned or you mentioned um, dealing with objections from neighbours. Now, if a neighbour objects, is that automatically going to throw a spanner in the works? Is it then going to have to go to committee? Or does it, is it just part of the course? <laughs> this is another how long is a piece of string. Um, 
uh, councils and planning departments and planning officers have something called delegated powers. Now, that just means that uh, they have certain, um, sometimes very, very wide uh, powers um, to deal with applications, whether or not they've got objections to them. Some councils and committee members will not allow their, um, their planning officers to have such powers. And, and for example, I was dealing with one council the other day and they said, oh, no, it's fine. We can have up to 10 letters of objection and we can still deal with this as officers. And I thought, wow, that's quite good. And then other councils, you'll go to them and say, as soon as you get two letters of objection, they automatically have to go to committee. So it's very much a local, whatever those delegated powers are. And they are laid down in the committee requirements. So if you wanted, if you really you know, are an insomniac and you really wanted to look at these things, then you can and you could, and the delegated powers will be there. There is also the issue of a call-in. If, for example, um, objectors are so aggrieved, they go to their local or their ward councillor and say, we're not happy about this. We want you to represent us and say something about this in the planning committee and we want it to go to planning committee. We don't want it to be dealt with by the officers. We want it to be dealt with by the members of the planning committee. So it can be called in then. It's called a call in to committee by usually the ward councillor, but it can be by any of the elected members on the council. And what they will normally do is a planning committee, they will normally stand up and speak on behalf of the neighbours and they will speak against that. If that happens and you get lots of other committee members agreeing with that member, then the likelihood is you're going to get a refusal. Um, the officers can only, when it goes to committee, uh, the officers can only recommend um, what the decision should be. The ultimate decision makers are the planning committee. So the officers can't really get involved. They can only advise and say, it complies with policy, we're recommending approval. The, uh, the members of the planning committee can say, no, we don't agree with this. We've got loads of objections about car parking. We think there's an issue um, and they can refuse it. And, and they have to then come up with reasons for refusal, why it should be refused. But neighbor objections per se cannot block a planning application on their own. The objections from neighbors have to be on valid planning grounds if it's something like, well, it's going to affect the value of my house, not a planning reason to object. And if they say, well, it's going to affect my view from my house, not a planning reason to object. Um, so that there are very defined, valid planning grounds. And I'm just writing a letter of objection for a client at the moment. Um, and there have to be very, very specific planning grounds on which to object. If they're just what, what are called vexatious, um, then it's, it's not going to affect the decision and the planners will deal with it uh, on the basis of the policies. But if you have a planning application, if you have an agent, then that agent, and whether it be a planning consultant, an architect, whoever, that agent who is representing you should respond to the neighbour's objections in writing politely um, and address them because a lot of uh, objectors get things wrong. They, they go off on a tangent and they say that things are going to happen that are clearly not and they've not read the plans properly. So you, they need to be responded to 
to give the planner a chance to write in his or her report what is actually happening and what the facts are, not what the objectors have run away with. I'll stop there. Linda, is there a national register? Because people come to me and they say, oh, you know, I'm looking to invest in HMOs and I'm not sure about my area. Is there anywhere where there's a one-stop shop that's got a list of all the areas with Article 4? Uh, no, it's a very good question. Um, I, I should put one on my website, really, shouldn't I, Rick? Um, um, yeah, there is. Uh, is it Article 4? Mm, oh, have I stopped? No. Nope, you're still here. My my face is frozen on. Oh no, we're back. We've uh, got you. Dip. Um, if you go um, now, I'm just wondering if you've got Article Four. Ah, there is one. If I'll give I'll give my lovely friend Mr. Richard Tacagney a plug here. If you go to, and and he does he deals with he does London. So if you want it, if you were investing in the London Greater London authorities. If you go to London Property Licensing, and I can't remember if it's .com or .co.uk, Richard Decagney has a list of all the London boroughs that have um, Article 4 directions. So his website might be useful. Okay. Um, the, there is also a company called quod.com, Q-U-O-D.com. Now, they have, um, I think it's Article 4 direction, um, but they also have um, the permitted development right exemption areas for office to residential conversions as well. So have a look at both of those. But I don't know of any one website that has a list of local planning authorities with every single local authority and what um, the Article 4 direction is in there. However, there's an opportunity for someone to get out there and do that. I don't imagine it's that hard. Maybe it's a, a week's work of work. Oh, I wonder who we could get to do that. Not me. I'll think about it and think about putting it on my website. Okay, cool. Um, Linda, thank you for that. Um, right, so we're still talking HMO. Um, the next um, set of questions that we get asked a lot is, can I go into the roof space? and create um, rooms either with or without dormers and can I go into the cellar under permitted development? Oh you asked the easiest questions don't you Rick? Um, <laughs> right okay let's start with the dormer. You have to read the requirements in and I was going to try and refer to the page number and I've not got it to hand. Um, you have to read the requirements of the general permitted development order. Uh, and that tells you what you can and can't do with roof alterations. Generally, if you're putting a rear dormer on and there is no road, and it, it's, it's, an, it's a roof slope not facing a road. So if you have a, an odd little um, property that has a road going around the back, then that is a roof slope facing a road. Does, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, so you have to be a bit careful with this. But generally, if it's a, a rear roof slope, that's not what it says in the legislation, but a rear roof slope, you can convert the loft under permitted development rights, provided that um, you have sufficient head height um, for building regulations that you can actually, someone can stand up there. They're not going to 
it's not going to be a hobbit cave um, that someone can stand up there. And so the pitch of the roof on the property has to be sufficient that you can get um, a dormer in there. Now, if you look again at the regulations, you cannot put a dormer that under under plan under permitted development rights. You might submit a planning application for it, but a permitted development dormer needs to be set in to the roof. It, it mustn't go out to the back main wall, so it mustn't look like a solid brick wall all the way up. It must also it needs to come back about two roof tiles back so that it's set into the roof. It cannot go above the ridge tile of the original roof. If you start raising the height of the original roof, this is not a dormer. A dormer is meant to sit into the roof. And so you need to set it in from each side a bit as well. The maximum created space in there is 50 square meters for um, a detached property but if you're going for a terrace or a semi it's 40 square meters 40, 40 cubic meters sorry not square Which is meters. pretty big so you have to make sure that you measure however it's this is what gets a lot of people it's cumulative which and by that i mean if you have had if there have been it doesn't need to be you but if there have been any other extensions onto the original built house as built in 1947. I know that's going back a long way. And no, I wasn't born then. Uh, but going back to 1947, if there have been other extensions, such as a single story extension with a pitch roof on it, you have to calculate, you have to add that bit of pitched roof, of roof space that's been created. You have to add that in to the cumulative total. So if, for example, you've created or somebody else before you has created 15 cubic meters of roof of additional roof space with an extension at the back with a single story or a two story extension at the back. And you now want to come along, and I'm gonna to have to be careful with my maths now, and it's a terrace, and you want to create 26 cubic meters, then you're at 41 cubic meters. So you've gone over. So if you add the two, 26 and 15, if you add, and that makes 41, I think, when I went to school. Um, so you've gone over the permitted development cubic content. So you've gone to 41 square meters. You know, it's just a, a mathematical example. And you would need planning permission. So you have to you have to be careful with this. You have to calculate in and add in any other uh, roof space extension. If it's flat roof, don't matter because there's no roof space created. Mm. But a lot of people <clears throat> forget about this or, or they stop reading part way down and, and you can't do that. Um, so you've got to be very careful. You've got to read the regs. You've got to know what you're doing. You've got to get the calculations right. You've got to have the head height, uh, ceiling height in there for, to comply with building regs. Um, and um, it, you have to put all of these things in place if you're going to put dormers in. What about cellars, Linda? Right, okay, we'll get cellars. Um, cellars and basement generally and again some councils interpret this in a different way but generally my interpretation is that if you are digging down in between the foundations so what you're doing is you're digging into um within the space the confined space of that building 
uh, if you're digging down into a cell, my interpretation of this is that that is permitted development. But what tends to also happen now is that people dig out the back as well because they put a garden room and they dig out and then they put these big bifoldy door things and they dig out a bit further, create a You've seen these on Grand Designs with Kevin include, um, and they put a little patio area at the back, bifold doors to get the light in, and they um, use the basement and maybe put a light well at the front or not. You've got to be careful with this because it's it's like cave dwelling, and you've got to have sufficient light, and these things have to comply with building regs. But as soon as you start to dig out and into the garden then that is no longer within the confines of the house. And I would say it wouldn't, that, that does not class as permitted development. You'd need planning permission. But I think if all you're doing is digging out a basement and tanking it um, to use it as I don't know, a cinema room or a playroom or a wine cellar or whatever you want to do, I would say that that is permitted development. You have to be careful with some of the London boroughs because they've put restrictions on these. A lot of the houses in London were going down several stories. Yeah. And lots of councils in London have put a block on that. You can only go down one level. Um, yeah. So you, you have to be careful with that. So I, I hope that answers that question. It does. Thank you, Linda. Um, so for those that are looking to buy HMOs that have, for example, I'm just going to, I'm going to make a scenario up. So, the HMO was used as a HMO prior to Article 4, uh, so therefore there should be grandfather rights, and there are some dormers in, but they don't have planning permission, and the vendors that are selling it have no proof that this was done with the correct planning permission. How can people safeguard themselves against buying a property without the right permission? Is there anything they can do? Right. Uh, there are a number of scenarios um, and um, a, a certain um, property guru of our acquaintance would say, don't become a motivated buyer. And I'm not going to name him. We all know who I mean. Um, do not become a motivated buyer um, because the first option in these instances is walk away. Um, because if the vendor has not got planning permission in place, he's not followed the rules, if you like, uh, maybe not got a license or anything like that. There are a lot of, there are a lot of tired and, and sometimes rogue landlords out there who are trying to offload a lot of this stuff and then just disappear to a, a, a beach in Barbados. Um, just be very careful with, with some of these. Don't become a motivated buyer. You, That's you a need Really good advice, Linda. Actually, you know, I wasn't expecting that answer, but that is absolutely really good advice. If you don't know, and if there's nothing you can do to prove it, don't buy it. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is, the worry that I have with you, it makes me sound like a very worried creature. I am not, but I'm, I'm, I'm uber cautious with people who have not complied. If they've not complied with the planning regs, what other things have they done in that property that they've not complied with? Do the soil pipes comply with building regs? Are you going to end up, I don't know, with a room full of poo? Is the drainage all right? Are you going to end up with, you know, blocks, showers and all of this kind of stuff? Is, is the actual fabric 
of the construction and the alterations that they might have done to this property or extensions? Are, are they safe? So once you get to a point where someone has not complied with, and have just said, planning, I've not bothered with it. Well, what else have they not bothered with? Um, mm -hmm. Are the fire in place? Is it actually a safe property? You know, the, the gas safety standards and all of this kind of stuff. So Linda, with, with Article 4 then, all right, so we're kind of talking about building and outbuilding, you know, and, and, and adding value to the property without planning permission. So let's look at Article 4 um, planning direction. So if the property was a HMO prior to Article 4, then they would be awarded grandfather rights. How do our community prove that they've got those necessary grandfather rights? Is there anything they can do? Can they can they go and get you know a, a certificate or anything to prove that they are using the property lawfully? Yeah, and, and you know that there is a way of doing this. Um, be very careful using the term grandfather rights. Um, there's no such thing in in not that I've seen anywhere. It, I mean, people may generally refer to it like that, but be very careful with that. There's no such thing as grandfather rights. Um, what it is, is, um, and, and the problem is you have to have, um, you have to have a willing vendor in this. And if the vendor is a bit squirmy and, and is trying to, oh no, no, it's all right, I've been using it for years. And, well, okay, prove it. Give us your accounts for this particular property. And invariably an, um, a landlord will have an account where loads of properties have got the rent going into. Uh, and what I think, you're sort of leading me into is um, a certificate of lawfulness. Now, I I would strongly strongly advise, and, and and I would imagine not many people take my advice on this because nobody wants to wait. Everybody goes, oh my god, it's a good deal. The earning capacity for this is fantastic, and I want it, I want it, I want it. So that you can't stop them. You, you, I get a lot of clients, and, and I will advise them, and I never hear from them again because they go ahead and buy it. And, and sometimes a lot of these things can just continue under the radar because they're in the kind of council that hasn't got the resources and hasn't got the time to chase these things. But all you need is one tenant who complains to the council about something or other, and you'll get an enforcement officer on your doorstep saying, well, you're using it for this many tenants. Uh, where's your planning permission if it needed it? And if it's in an Article 4 direction, they will then start to investigate. Uh, excuse me. Um, so you've got to be careful with these things. You've got to be careful with each council will be different. Some of these properties, if you can get, you know, the bomb-proof position, and a lot of conveyancing solicitors um, will accept an indemnity insurance. Uh, some lenders won't. You've got to be careful with conveyancing solicitors and lenders. Your conveyancing solicitor may say to you, well, no, I wouldn't buy this because we, if they know about planning permission, this doesn't have planning permission in place. If it doesn't have planning permission in place, what you can then do is if they have got sufficient evidence and documents to give to you that they have been using this property for 10 years, for the last 10 years prior to, or however long they've been using it prior to the Article 4 direction, now, some people say, oh, you only need to um, do it four years. Well, to be perfectly honest, it's 10. Um, you need evidence. So you'd need documentary evidence of rents being paid, you know, uh, 
um, statutory declarations from tenants. If you've got long-term tenants, that's great. But in HMOs, you tend not to. Um, you also you, you need a whole history trail of continuous use. Right. If there had been any break, and I had a client um, of this in London, and unfortunately, he got all the tenants out when he bought it, got all the tenants out. Um, because he was a, an absent landlord, he was in another country. Um, the builder was supposed to take two months to do a refurb. It went on for six months. So he had a property with no tenants in for six months. So he could not prove rental income and continuous uninterrupted use. Mm -hmm. And that, because of that, that failed and he could not get planning permission and it had to go back to a single dwelling house. Right. So, Linda, clear something up um, because you, you mentioned 10 years as, you know, for established use, but that, um, for, when we're talking about properties that were already being used as HMOs prior to Article 4, they don't need to go back 10 years themselves, do they? Because they are awarded the necessary planning permission as long as they were being used as a HMO prior to the Article 4 direction being implemented, right? Well, some councils will say you've got to prove 10 years pre-Article 4 direction. Right, okay. So how do... How, sorry, I've got a bit garbled there. So we, we, we've heard of this Certificate of Lawfulness, Certificate of Lawful Use, um, how do people get that? What's involved in it, and is it costly? No, it's not costly, uh, but it's not for the faint-hearted. It's a simple. Can't remember what the fee is. It's it's same as a, a planning application. It's four hundred odd quid or something. Change of use. Um, so the council fee is not a lot of money, um, but what it does take is time in collating the evidence and getting. If you've got, say, a long-term tenant. A stat that person to be willing to sign a statutory declaration, have it notarised in front of a solicitor. So that may rack up some fees. Uh, you need someone who knows what they're doing. I would say this, wouldn't I? Not necessarily a planning consultant, but someone who knows what they're doing. Um, solicitors can do these things, provided, again, they know what they're doing. Um, you have to tell a story chronologically to say how far and, and, and proof and every piece of evidence. People say, oh, well, I'll just get council tax. I'll just say to the council, we'll check your council tax records. We've been paying council tax. But you can't do that with an HMO because mm. generally it's council tax is, is for the building. Um, you can do it with a separate flat, but not with HMO. So it's not you saying to the council, oh, we'll check your records. No, the, the burden of proof lies with you. You have to produce all of this evidence sufficient to prove to the um, uh, the planners that this has on the balance of probabilities, and that's the phrase that they use, on the balance of probabilities, this has been used for an HMO, for this use that you're saying that you're proving with corroborating evidence. You'll, you'll know that word quite well, Rick, but each piece of evidence has to corroborate the other. So a tenant says, I've been in here for 10 years and has signed a statutory declaration. The um, landlord's accounts show that this person has paid rent into his account for the last 10 years. So that corroborates. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, yeah. um, I think it's really important that everyone that's watching this is that councils work differently throughout the whole of the country. And I know certainly for us in Worcester, we've got Article 4 direction. Can't remember when it came in now. It feels like forever. Um, but we were given 
grandfather rights, if that's the right terminology or not to use, um, prior. So if we had a HMO that was operating as a HMO, I can't remember, it, I think it was six months prior to Article 4 direction coming in, and then we were given uh, grandfather rights. We were allowed to use that property moving forwards. The other aspect, Linda, as well, is we've got a bit of a conflict now because um, when we're looking for corroborating evidence and we're looking to build an audit trail to prove the property's use class, we are going to be using AST contracts, right? And then tenants move out. If they're on six-month contracts, they can move out. We can replace them with somebody else. So keeping the AST contract would be a great audit trail. But now, of course, we've got GDPR, which kind of says, unless you need to keep it, you know, you, you, you shouldn't. You should, you should get rid of it. So, um, you know, there's a bit of a conflict there. So I would say, you know what, folks? If you've got a property, if you ever ever feel that either for a remortgage or for a, a sale or to justify the planning permission to make sure you've got the right use class, you need to keep that information, you know? And I think, you know, you'd have to check the lawful basis under GDPR, but I would say that you've got a legitimate interest in order to keep that information to safeguard that property from moving forwards. Linda, um, gosh, it's 10 to 10. All right, I've got one more question for you. Um, if that's all right, because it's, yeah. Can I just interrupt? Yes. Let me just say, uh, with certificates of lawfulness, a lot of, oh, I'm feeling a bit seasick. My my <laughs> gorilla pod thing has moved on my desk. Um, that's holding my phone. Um, just to let, just to let the people who are listening know that our, our, our listener, as Terry Wogan used to say, um, you can also do a certificate of lawfulness for a proposed use. So it, it, you were talking about if you know that um, uh, a, a, an Article 4 direction is coming in, because as I said, they tend to take 12 months. So if, if you're clued up enough to actually know that this is coming in, in in 12 months time, and you've seen a property, or in six months time, you've seen a property and you think that would be a fantastic HMO, what you can do before the Article 4 direction comes in, and this is a little known trick, not many people know this what you can do you can submit a, an application for a certificate of lawfulness for the proposed use of the property so if you want to use a property for an article and it is still pd it's still permitted development you can submit a certificate of lawfulness application and say i want to use this as a proposed hmo in in the future and if you get permission, a certificate of lawfulness, they agree and say, yes, it currently is permitted development, provided you could do that before the Article 4 direction comes into place, then you are bomb-proof because you've got mm. a certificate of lawfulness that says quite clearly, well, I got this before the Article 4 direction came in and I'm, use, I'm using the property under the basis of this. But you'd have to do it really before the Article 4 direction came in. But a lot, very few people are in the know about Article 4 directions coming in, and it's yeah. very difficult to keep track of them all across the country. Fantastic, Linda. Thanks for that. My last question then is another one that pops up all of the time. Um, if we can try and um, dilute the answer, I don't know, because there's quite a lot involved in this. We're going to talk about um, the commercial to residential permitted development. So. I know that it's not really that simple, um, but people post all the time, you know, I'm going to take on an office and I'm going to turn it into um, a residential 
or even a HMO. Now, I know there's a step process with that. How easy is it, Linda, to do that? Do you need to do anything or can you literally just get in there and turn it into a house? No, 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 no. As, as I'm sure you know, and you're asking me these pointed questions. Right. If you are turning, now let's stop calling it commercial to residential because there are lots of different regs. There's a class N that means you can turn a property to residential. It's a different issue. And let's stop calling it permitted development because really it's not. Um, if you want to turn a, a, a block or any class B1, use class B1, general offices, it's not commercial, it's offices. The, there are lots of different uh, sections to this. Um, and this first one is office to residential. It's now a permanent right. It's been made permanent. There was a long stop date. That's been taken away. It's been made permanent. So is, is, that, is that forever now then, Linda? There's no end date to that? Yeah, no long stop date at all. As soon as you get planning permission or prior approval, because it's not permitted development, it lasts for three years. It's now like a full planning application. From the date of the approval, it lasts for three years. So you have to complete it within three years. Okay. So you can put that in your back pocket, keep it, use it as a collateral with the bank, and you know save it for two years and do it in two years. So that's, that's the first thing. But let's stop calling this permitted development because it's really not. It's, it's badged as permitted development. I say there are three levels of permitted development. This is not true permitted development. You cannot just go ahead and do it. You have to submit what's called a prior approval application to the council, which means you need to get their prior approval before you go ahead and do this. Now, somebody came to me and uh, this had already been done. He bought it, found some tenants in there, and then came to me and said, can you get me prior approval for this and what part of prior approval you have to do it once the work has been done or has been started you can't do it by this procedure you would need full planning permission and the likelihood is you won't get full planning permission for these things because there's no car parking and no amenity space generally so you have to submit a prior approval application for office to residential conversion it is office to c3 that is what the legislation said. It is not office to C4 HMO. So if you want to get a prior approval application and get the principle of that use from office to residential established and the prior approval of the council given, you can do that. You can't, and lots of people are doing this and lots of people I know disagree with me, but there are lots of people getting in trouble with lenders and uh, with conveyancing solicitors as well because they, they've missed a step um, right. if you then go ahead and convert a property to from office to flats and for example you've got six flats uh, and each of these flats has uh, four bedrooms for example you cannot during the refurbishment work ignore the planning application plans and go in and put an ensuite in every bedroom in each of and put four tenants in each of the flats because that then is hmo in each of the flats there is no there are no permitted development rights to convert either a house or a flat if it's been new built or newly refurbished without first <sighs> inhabiting yeah, that flat, using that flat 
for its original purpose, i.e. C3. How long so have to... Is there a time scale to say that? So um, for those that have just joined us, what we're talking about here is doing office to C3 residential and then potentially from C3 residential to C4 under permitted development. Kind of a bit of a stepping stone here, but is there a period of time, Linda, that you would need to prove that it's been C3 before you can then go on to C4? I, I, I haven't a clue. I can't answer that question. I would say minimum three to six months. Um, right. That would then, you know, I mean, a lot of people have argued with me as well if, if we use it for a week. Well, I think that if you went to a planning inspector with that, they would find it unreasonable. Um, it's got, the use has got to be established. I would get it established with council tax um, and everything else like that. And only then, and, and somebody said to me, well, that doesn't comply with my strategy. And I said, okay, fine. If it doesn't comply with your strategy, then think of something else because yeah. it doesn't comply with planning either. But loads of people are doing it. And, mm. you know, um, come to me and say, ah, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay, fine. I know. Well, you know, sometimes I think people um, know the answer, but they go around and ask lots of people to try and get the answer that they're looking for. If they go, if they know they're breached, then they're out there looking to try and prove that they haven't. And I know, you know, I'm not, I, I know it happens. And I know sometimes people do cut corners, but, you know, I think like everything we do, everyone that's listening here, you've got to make sure you do stuff properly. You've got to make sure that you do your research and always, always, always the book will stop with you. No matter what advice you take from any professional at the end of the day, the book will stop with you. So you must make sure you do your own due diligence. And what we do on this show and everyone we bring on to this show is we, you know, we just have a chat and we talk to all the professionals, but you still got to do your own due diligence. Linda, it's 10 o'clock. I'm really, um, I don't know where the time goes. I could talk to you all morning. Very often we do. I've got one last question because last time we spoke and it was over a year ago, your book, yeah, I was about to do that as well. Look, you know, I've got cold coffee in here. It's not very nice. You told me a year ago that your book was coming out and I still haven't seen it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Honest, I am. I'm getting nagged from all corners now. Um, you, said, I am, you, you told me a year ago that you'd, you'd already I am, got about I am, doing, I am taking some downtime and I am hoping to have it finished by the end of March. I mean, it's... Well, uh, there's probably going to be new legislation coming out in, in March and we've not had time to talk about that, but that's probably for another... Uh, with yeah. Rick. I think so. Linda, I think the, the big issue, isn't it, when you're writing books that contain a lot of legislation is they kind of, they never go away because you've got to update them pretty much all of the time. Otherwise, it's never going to be current. So, and I think you fall into that field with planning, definitely. Yeah. Linda, I want to say thank you on behalf of everyone that's been listening today. If anybody wants to contact you, can they private message you? They, uh, <laughs> if I'm going to be in a day, I, I would prefer that people send in a message to admin at planetright.co.uk because I've got a, a, a telephone calling system. If they do want to uh, friend me on Facebook, yeah, that's fine, and send me a message. I won't give long and, and detailed responses on Messenger um, because there's a danger. I like to see documents. I like to see a site plan and, that, and, and go through this properly in my telephone consultation process. And I know there's a fee for that. But again, I, I like to get things right and take time with people so that they can then move.
you've got to understand everyone that you know um, professionals uh, don't work for free and you can't expect just to uh, to take you know an hour of linda's time asking loads of questions uh, for free so you have to do respect that that everyone we bring on to the show absolutely you can contact them absolutely you can make arrangements and appointments with them but you know people don't work for free and please do respect that so linda i want to say thank you again once again um it's now just gone 10 o'clock so uh, we're gonna have to hit the button because i've got a busy day today thank you everyone for watching and uh, we'll catch you back here hopefully tomorrow morning at nine o'clock take care thanks rick go tenant the revolutionary new property software built by landlords and trusted by tenants GoTenant is your one-stop property management assistant that will take the pain away from your tenant recruitment process and the management of your properties. From advertising your property to maintenance reporting, electronic signatures to full property management software. Stop worrying about double bookings and the hassle of unnecessary admin because GoTenant is here to enable you to seamlessly run your portfolio from anywhere in the world. Go to gotenants.co.uk to find out more.